0: last week. Um, It's it's, it's all about, it's just Jesus talking about money. Okay, so just really light topic. Um, Started off nice and easy this morning. I'm going to run through the whole gospel of everything Jesus says about money. Here we go. First nine pages are roughly about Jesus and John the Baptist's birth. Okay, not a lot of talk about money. first time it comes up, John the Baptist says on page 10, don't extort people for money. Then on page 13, Jesus stated that he's anointed to bring good news to the poor. Another money reference, Jesus is here for poor people. Uh, On page 15, the first disciples leave all of their money and their possessions on the shore, and they follow Jesus. On page 16, it happens again. This time, it's a rich tax collector who leaves everything for Jesus. Um. On uh, page 18, Jesus says you have to give to those who won't repay to you. You have to love your enemies, etc. cetera. Um, so even if you're not going to get paid back, still give to people. Uh, on pay, there's a parable about canceling debts uh, on the bottom of page 21 going to page 22. You don't need work. You don't need money to do God's work is, is an expressed parable at the bottom of 25. Um, Giving to enemies in your life and those who are in need. So that's another reference to giving to people who can't pay you back. Page 29 and 30. As long as uh, the long teaching on money is on page 34 and 35. That's going to be the primary text that we're going to focus on this morning, so I won't talk about that. Um, Page 39, there's a parable about the cost of following Jesus. It specifically states money is going to be one of the costs. Parable 40 I'm sorry, page 40 is another parable this time. It's about a woman who loses money. Um, There's a parable that we studied at the beginning of last month about the prodigal son, also on page 40, where he spends all of his money. Prodigal literally means bad with money. Um, The seventh parable about money (laughs) comes on page 41 when there's a manager, and then the Pharisees argue with Jesus about the meaning of the parable on the bottom of 41, and he ends up saying... No one can serve two masters. You'll hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved with money. That's the end of that 41. It's a comparable and another thing. And there's this fallacy, just aside really quickly, there's this fallacy that, have you ever heard the word mammon? Raise your hand if you've ever heard the word mammon or heard it in the sermon. Yeah, you all have heard it. So uh, a lot of times preachers get up and they say, God's not talking, Jesus isn't talking about money, he's talking about mammon. Mammon is the love of money. Except for in Greek, mammon means money. So it's a fallacy. It's a way to tell you that it's okay to value money in your life. And it, it actually comes historically, I didn't mean to do this today. I'm just somebody put like a minute on the clock because I can't go into this today. There's if you study Christian history of North America, specifically white Christian history. Of the United States, you'll learn that when we made, when we separated church and state—which I'm all um, for—when we separated church and state, what happened was all of these rural farm communities that were popping up like all over the place during the very early stages of the United States um, were the the preachers were no longer dependent; They they didn't ever have any federal money, so they started to have to encourage people to make a lot of money so that they could have a life that they, they could live on the finances of their farm, farming communities. So this is a, this is really common. Every pastor in America wants to do this. They want to have a lot of people with a lot of money so that they don't have to worry about the church's finances. That's where the mammon fallacy comes in. They're like, no, you can have a lot of money, you just can't care about it so you can give it to me. Um, a parable about a rich man and his use of money on 42 is the next one, so that's another Parable. In 45, Jesus tells someone that in order to inherit eternal life, they're going to have to sell everything they own and give the money away. He finishes, how hard is it going to be for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of the needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Here comes another fallacy that you've been told. The eye of the needle is not actually, you know, the eye of a needle. It's a passageway and a narrow gate in Jerusalem. Camels could go through it, but they had to be very careful. That's a totally complete lie. There's no evidence to support that there's any passage in Jerusalem called the pie of the needle. It's another lie that you have been told. If you've been told that lie, I hope you have not. My own father used to repeat that lie in in middle school, Sunday school. Okay? Jesus is saying it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God if you're rich. And then he says, but through God all things are possible. So there's another, there's a way, but he starts by saying it's impossible, not some special passageway. Forty-six. There is an evil rich man named Zacchaeus. I talked about him a couple weeks ago. He gives away half of his money and stops extorting people, so he's not going to give any more money. Um, And then this whole thing also on, uh, oh no, that's, that's on, sorry, that's on 46. 46 and 47, there's another money parable. 48, he wrecks the temple because he doesn't think that the temple and money should mix. There are money changers, so he wrecks it. Um, 48 and 49, he tells uh, a tenth parable about money. Um, 49, again, he talks about taxes and money. it uh, says that you should pay your taxes. Um, which is an uncommon thing for a lot of megachurch pastors to preach on. Um, on page 50, he talks about money where he reflects on watching people give offerings at the temple. Uh, on page 53, he talks about Peter's net worth, both before and after following him. And then finally, on page 54, which is right before the crucifixion, we have Judas who betrays Jesus for what? Say it loud. Jesus talks. six or seven more. There's a lot there. Jesus talks about money all the time. In fact, according to Klein Snodgrass, this just is funny, when I started to research how much Jesus talks about money, the first article that came up with the highest reviews from a scholarly Atlas database was written by the guy who preached here two weeks ago. Okay, he just happens to be a very, very gifted and and popular New Testament speaker, speaker of the New Testament, and he wrote uh, an article that I've now printed out. In the back, there's like five copies if you want to read one or grab one. um, About money, and he says in that article, Jesus talks more about money in his teaching than he does any other topic. And perhaps it makes sense. Because if you look back to the Old Testament of the 613 commandments that are issued in the Old Testament, think about it being just a list of rules, right? Of the 613 things Jesus says, the vast majority of them have to do with money, possessions, and ownership. Just like the Constitution. It's what we care about which is why we make rules about it. It's what we care about which is why God knows he has to make rules about it. Timothy Johnson, another world-renowned biblical scholar, writes that specifically the Gospel of Luke sees possessions as the primary indication of one's existence and their faith. There are literally dozens of books written on the topic of Jesus and money, thousands of articles, and perhaps hundreds of millions, seriously, hundreds of millions of pages of the local commentaries devoted to the subject of Jesus talking about money. And yet, somehow, we don't talk about this. In the church, we don't talk about this with other people in our lives. It's impolite to talk about how much you give or how much you, right? And and some of that's biblical, right? You're not supposed to let the right hand know what the left is doing. But we also don't ever have a conversation about the value of giving up things in our life. And it's because we live in a society that's founded on consumerism and capitalism. I mean, literally, the the pillars of our economic system are these guys, right? You know these guys, right? There's the Farming Fathers and Milton Friedman, and that's Adam Smith, the invisible hand, the father of capitalism. These guys wrote the book. People say that the the, the, the Constitution or the, the church or whatever the the, the the United States was founded on biblical principles. It was founded on these guys' principles and most of them weren't Christian. And so obviously not this guy, he's from the seventies, but he's just really popular. society is on. And it comes with an underlying assumption. And it's, it's necessary. If you want to challenge me on this, I'll go to bat. I have a degree in economics. The underlying assumption, the underlying assumption of capitalism is that greed is good. If you take away that assumption, the entire doctrine of capitalism, the entire system falls apart. There's nicer ways to say it like it's an incentive based economy. But the underlying is That greed—you have to want more than you have in order for the system to function. If you do not want more than you have, the entire economic system falls to shambles. And, and it's really—it's uh, really strange because, like, all over the place, if you're going to hear, even in this passage that I'm going to read, Jesus says, "What greed is bad." So, like, how do you reconcile those two things? We're not talking about biblical contextual factors where you have to split hairs. and Well, they don't really understand the system, and what do they think about this? And what, but, like, they didn't have a context. Of, no, they had a total understanding of what greed was. This has existed since the beginning of time. They, they understood completely. Jesus understood completely what greed was and says it's bad that our society is founded on an economic principle, this is great is good. So there is a dissonance that exists there. And not only do we do capitalism in this country, we export it. This is why Japan has the highest up-and-coming rate of suicide. Because Japan, which was not a capitalist country, the United States has exported after World War II, has exported our capitalism to that society and that those people already work so hard under the current system that they were in that people are literally working themselves to death. Some of them are not suicidal. Some of them are literally dying in their sleep at 30 years old from working too hard. Because the underlying assumption that greed is good is not a biblical one that, is defi- that, that helps human flourishing. Now we're going to talk about what it means to work within that system. Because we're not overthrowing that system we can't. We're like 40 people. But you have to hear, first and foremost, that the underlying assumption that is at the baseline of all of it is the problem. And we do it, and then we say, but Jesus doesn't really talk about money. But Jesus does talk about money. a lot of money, so you can make a lot of money. Amen. Why do you go to a good college? So you can get a good first job. You can build the connections. So that you can get a good career. That's important, right? you got to have a good career. right? first job isn't your career, unless you're really lucky. Why do you get a good career? So you can have good pay. Why do you have Because last week, what? who are you going to follow up? Are you going to listen, last week it was, are you going to listen to what the church says following Jesus is, or are you going to listen to what Jesus is why Jesus is? Are you going to listen to what the United States says good money management is, and our culture says good money management is, or are you going to listen to this? I mean, it's, it's up to you. Now that you're reading it, you're going to have the tools, you're going to be faced with the realities of what this actually says submit to. We have to choose. There's a choice that has to be made. What are you going to submit to? Are you going to submit to the way of the world? Are you going to submit to the way of the Bible? Because it's foolish. To submit to the way of the Bible is said over and over in the text. You'll read it when you get to Paul. The way of the world views this as foolishness. It's not going to make sense to other people. So I'm going to try to do my best this morning to submit this to you. And I'm going to assume that all of you here call yourselves followers of Jesus. If you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, disclaimer, this is also super interesting. But you don't have to live by it. If you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, just think of this as an interesting philosophy of this crazy guy who lived 2,000 years ago. But if you do call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're going to have a decision to make. Or perhaps you already have made that decision, or you're making that decision every day. Because truly, this is not a decision that you make once. This is a decision that you make weekly, yearly, daily, hourly. So let's go to the text. Someone called from the crowd. Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. This is legal. You can get a judge. Jesus was a great judge. You can, get a great, you can get a judge to, to order that your inheritance be split among people. Because sometimes parents didn't do it the way that people like. So he says, uh, judge, teacher, help me out. Tell my brother to divide our my father's estate with me. Which is interesting. Because like, when you read that, you're like, yeah, I mean, he should get some, right? That makes sense. Jesus replies, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? I love that Jesus is always just like... Ooh, did he? Um, then he says, Beware. Guard yourself against every kind of grade. Life is not measured by how much you own. So this guy is asking Jesus to tell his brother to give him what he's entitled to. And he says, I don't even want to answer that question because the underlying assumption, sorry, is bad. Then he told a story. He says, The rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, What should I do? I don't have room for all my crops so much money, I don't even have a place to put it. i got to open a 401k. Um, and he said, hey, know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. We all do this. And then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and all my other goods, and I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend! I love when people call themselves my friend. My friend! You have stored enough away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. You will die this very night, and then who will get everything that you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but to not have a relationship with God. Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, that is why I tell you, don't worry about your everyday life. Whether you have enough food to eat or clothes to wear, for life is more than food. Your body is more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, but God feeds them. And how far more valuable are you than any birds? Call your worries. Can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying about bigger things? says it was horrible. What stuck out to you? Anything stick out to you in that? At all? What about questions? Do you have any questions about that? Or things that were troubling? It's okay. It's hard. That's that's troubling. It feels like you're trapped. There's no... tell you my answer to all three of those, what stuck out to me. What is troubling and what questions I have. Where does this leave my 401k? Because it really <laughs> messes with the list that I showed before, like the graphic of the American, and I get that that's not how all of us live all the time, but it's the underlying assumption to why we do the major 40 hour week things in our life. I get that not all of you are are defined by your work or defined by your school or defined by trying to make the next buck, but that's the underlying assumption why you do, like, 40%, 50% of your life, right? It's not your fault. You you were born into this. But this messes with it because it says this. This guy says, Literally what all of us want to say. He says, I'll sit back to myself and say, my friend, you have enough story away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry, Retire. You know how God responds to that? Fail. You did exactly what you were supposed to do. <laughs> this guy does exactly what our entire society is built on. All that incentive that we talk about, all that good stuff. And what is that to God? Foolish. It's crazy. And, and, but this is like literally what Jesus does Skip ahead of here again. This is literally what Jesus does all the time. All the time, Jesus does exactly what he did in his story. He has a pedagogical method. You guys know what pedagogical means? I'm assuming you do. It means he has a teaching method. He has a method for instructing people. And the method is very clear. He's asked a question that seemingly has a clear answer. Sometimes not, but oftentimes has a clear answer. So he's asked a question, and how does he respond? He tells a story. This is why with, I was talking about all the time. You can't separate Jesus' parables from the rest of his teaching. They, they, they are synonymous. He's asked a question, he tells a story, in response, And then sometimes he interprets the story. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's so obvious, like in this case. He doesn't need to interpret the story. A guy builds up a bunch of wealth. And then tries to retire, and God says, You don't have any time left. You wasted your time trying to build bigger barns. So he doesn't need to interpret this one, but sometimes he interprets them. And then he provides an alternative. In this case, his alternative is pretty clear. And then finally, he summarizes. Um, His alternative is pretty clear. Just don't worry. He says, look, the alternative to living like the world wants you to live, which is constantly worrying about how am I going to make it to the end of retirement or how am I going to make it to this or how am I going to get that next job and how am I going to do this thing or how am I – I mean, what, what next degree do I need to get so that I can get more money? What need, Like, all of these things. Hey, what if I fail this test in biology? Does that going to mean that I don't get into AP biology? Is that going to mean that Dartmouth don't want me anymore? Does that mean – I mean, right, like – Instead of worrying about that stuff, Jesus just says, don't worry, which is impossible. He says, look, all I can tell you is I know you're not going to follow my advice, but just don't worry about it. Because God's got you. Because things are going to happen in your life, and and you're going to think that it's all falling apart. Well, what if I don't have a safety? Days, just don't worry about it. It's not very comforting. But it's just, it's what he says. So what do we do? And then he summarizes. I love his summaries because they're the most quotable parts. But it's, you have to understand it's part of a greater scheme. The summaries on their own don't tell the whole story. That's why he tells the story. If you only needed the summary, he wouldn't tell the story. Story gets to the core of who we all are. We're all people who, if we fell into a lot of good money, might think about retiring, building bigger barns, and leaning back on that. But the, uh, the, the actual, you know, biblical principle here is: sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven, and the purses of heaven will never be old or develop holes treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it, no moth can destroy it wherever your treasure is. There your desires of your heart will be also. What Jesus is providing us here is a change-up. It's my last baseball reference of the year. Because the good Chicago team has not been playing. change up is when the hitter is expecting something and instead something else comes at them and they wind up swinging wildly at something that's not even happened to them yet. The player looks like they're going to throw it fast, they throw it slower. Jesus is providing us a change up. We all think we know how Jesus is going to respond when somebody says, Jesus, why shouldn't I get what my father left for me? Why shouldn't I get the money that's owed to me? We expect, we know what's coming, and Jesus says, even to ask that question means that you are lost. It's a change-up. He does it all the time in the Gospel of Matthew. You'll read it, where he says, You have heard it said blank, but I tell you blank. When you get to Matthew, and I think it's like week six, right? Count all the time, Jesus says. You have heard of blank, but I tell you what. That's just Jesus speaking into our world and saying, You have heard it said, make sure you diversify your portfolio and save up for retirement because you don't want to be a person who's left on the street and rely on that security because it might fall apart because our government's really messed up and But instead I say, Give away everything you own because I got you. morning, I want you to see that every time we go back to this book, we're going to have real-life choices to make. And sometimes they're not choices that you've heard before. I imagine most of you have heard a sermon about giving to the poor. But when you read this and you don't skip parts and you don't just rely on whatever the pastor wants to talk about, and when I as a pastor am forced to read this and come face to face with all the texts that i don't like because i want to retire we all have decisions that we have we, we, we cannot hide from what is seen so if you have not done mercy and you read this or you hear the sermon you go i don't want that. i encourage you do not read verse do not do it if you're afraid that Jesus is going to say something that you don't like, you have very well-founded fears. talked to small group leaders last week, and the thing that I heard over and over was, um, Jesus says stuff I don't like. Jesus says stuff I don't want to listen to. Jesus says stuff I don't, I don't think of Jesus saying this stuff. I have a very clear picture of Jesus in my mind. And he is sitting on a tree stump. With a lamb on one knee and a little child on the other. And he's always clean, and he's white, which is a fallacy. And he just keeps saying, love is unconditional. The kingdom of God is for all of those who say they believe in me. And instead Jesus is like this rugged guy who's going town from town being like, hey, let's talk about your finances not a fun Jesus he's a rough Jesus he says it over and over though right like we can't escape when you read the gospel book in a week you can't escape it he talks just in the gospel book but actually if you look at the whole bible more than he talks about eternity which is what we're all about in the church right heaven more than he talks about God's unconditional love which he does talk about that's a thing more than he talks about sexuality. More than he talks about marriage. More even than he talks about justice. More than he talks about belief. He talks about what you do with your money. He talks about your bank account And how you use it. But yet we in church like to sit back and say... We have strong opinions and we, I mean, whatever, you would just throw it out there, right? Like we, our opinions uh, influence the way that we post things on social media or how we vote or how this or how that. And they're on these select issues, but none of us is willing to say we need to act in such a way as to destroy the underlying assumption of our entire. because the biggest barrier for most of the people that I know is their stuff someday we're all going to die and then we won't be able to hide behind the mountain of treasure and accumulated wealth that we have but if the same people who want to hide behind that mountain of support and you know their safety net gave up all of it in pursuit oh I'm sorry gave up the pursuit of all of that, and just gave to the poor, supported the needy, used their money to further the kingdom of God, then it wouldn't be waiting for them on the other side. What would be waiting for them on the other side? Their treasure in heaven. Everything Take what you have. They if we actually read the Bible and we actually believe the Bible and we actually follow the Bible, then I want you to see that your life is going to objectively look different to those around you. It is. You're not going to look like other people. And if this is a hard message and you're like, I don't want to do this, that's okay. You don't have to do this, but you're just not following Jesus. That's fine. But your life is going to look specifically different than other people who don't. And if you're a person who's sitting here right now I'm going, yeah, but how do I know where my treasure is stored on it? How do I know whether I'm doing it right? I challenge you, we produce documents that are great treasure maps every year. They're called your tax returns. And they reveal where your treasure is. Because right there, you're going to put down how much you gave to you gave to the poor, and you're going to put down how much you bought and had to pay online sales tax for, and then you're going to put, I mean, you're going to see all this stuff. You're going to see it in your credit card statements. You're going to see it reflected in your friends, your family. I don't know. You choose. let pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your table this morning knowing that you have always provided food for us. That even if we are the ones who, who somehow itself think that we need. really hard work you always provided the way that's about why we